Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a series of 17th century witch trials that happened in uh, in Lancashire in England. And these witch trials were later recorded in an account called The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster, which really is just a, it is a premium bit of 400-year-old clickbait titling. They're calling it A Wonderful Discovery. This topic sent in uh, by Ian Slevin. Thanks very much, Ian, uh, for sending this one. It is, it is a cracker. It is a cracker. There is a... Uh, <laughs> It's a very, I mean, look, there's some serious stuff obviously we're going to get across, but uh, there's a lot of silliness. <laughs> there's a lot of silliness as well. And uh, um, I do love it. I do love that. Anyway, what happened was this in England in, in 1612, uh, 20 people were accused of witchcraft. And this, uh, and because a bloke whose name was Thomas Potts wrote this account of the whole affair, we should have an unparalleled and, and reasonably historically reliable insight um, into you know the proceedings, into the people, into what what actually happened, why it happened, all that sort of stuff. So it's a very uh, you know it's a very valuable document these days because of course witch hunts, witch trials, they were nothing new in 1612. Of course, today they're a very popular bit of folklore, and and, and the uh, the wonderful discovery actually gives us you know rather than it being just folklore and uh, you know rather than going the way the sort of the, the pirates did with eye patches and peg legs and all the sort of stuff, it actually gives a very realistic account of how how some of these uh, things went down. But um, you know the the modern fascination with uh, with witches and witch, witch hunts and all that sort of stuff uh, is, despite witch hunts generally having a, a very extremely, uh, in fact, extremely questionable background. Um, while obviously you know religious strife worsened and and, and fueled witch hunts everywhere, particularly in the wake of the the Reformation, any historical crusade against uh, witches at any point in history was was generally very strongly embedded in sexism as well, uh, as as of course it was overwhelmingly women who stood uh, accused of uh, of witchcraft and, and you know stood trial for it, and the Lancashire witch trials were no exception. The vast majority of the twenty people accused were of course they, they were indeed female. Uh, but I was interested to learn about the, the broader context of witchcraft and, and witch hunting in the 17th century, however. There are a couple of surprises along the way, uh, particularly the, the uh, sort of political and religious contexts of a, lot of, these, uh, of a lot of these trials and a lot of these, uh, you know, proceedings there. Um, and the reasons that they're, you know, the, the, persecu- the reason for their persecution uh, by the authorities, particularly in, in Scotland and England, because uh, it's not quite as simple as, you know, which is bad, get that fire going. There, there, are, there are a few other things going on as we'll discuss. And on top of that, just some pretty silly stuff went on, you know. And after, I have to say this, after a few weeks away from it, we are, you know, we are back to, you know, good old-fashioned half-ass history, blood and guts and horrible murder. And, I, you know, I can almost hear the the collective sigh of relief from all the rusted-on listeners here. So I look forward to this one. Anyway, today we're going to be focusing principally on one group of witches from the Lancashire trial. There, there are a bunch of different witches from different, uh, well, I say witches, a bunch of different people, accused witches anyway, um, brought from you know various areas in Lancashire who some were connected to each other, others weren't. Uh, the most famous group was, of course, the Pendle witches, but we'll talk about some of the others. For instance, the uh, the Sams- Samlesbury, Samlesbury, I don't know. I mean, I complain about bloody, you know, French and Belgian and all these other countries that have ridiculous, like, but England's just as bad. Like, Worcestershire is apparently Worcester. I don't know how this is pronounced. Samlesbury? Samlesbury? I don't know. These ones, anyway. 
um, they were all they were all tried at the same time. The, the, the Lancashire Witch Trials saw uh, you know a very diverse array of, uh, of people from around the county uh, brought together in uh, you know for, for these uh, for these this absolute farce of a legal legal proceeding. So we'll get across it all. We've got a lot to get across today, of course, as ever. So let's get to it. Here we go. Going all the way back here. Going all the way back to actually not to 1612 as you might have thought uh, when the trials took place. No, no, we're going back a lot further than that. We're going all the way back to the reign of Henry VIII. In the early 16th uh, century, specifically to uh, to 1542, so uh, you know we're, we're what going about 70 years or so here. Um, and uh, as you may already know, Henry VIII he uh, he split England with the Catholic Church. He created the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Uh, just so he could have his end away, basically, turning England into a Protestant nation. And he also dissolved all of the English convents and monasteries, which made him obviously a good bit of cash, but also turfed out all the Catholic clergy that had lived there who had to go into hiding. And religious tension very high at this point. Henry further persecuted people who weren't good and proper Anglicans uh, with his Witchcraft Act of 1542. So he wasn't just going after the Catholics, he was going after the pagans, the, you know, the witches, whoever else, threatening the death penalty. Who specifically to anyone who was uh, who was thought to be a witch? Now again, this nothing new, nothing new here. Witches had been hunted for hundreds of years, um, and uh, during the late medieval period, witch hunting had you know descended into a manic fervor several times. But uh, people they were they were scared of all the usual stuff from witches, all the stuff you'd expect from a witch: secret midnight meetings, dancing around in the forest naked, packs with the devil. Um, eating small babies, you know, all the stuff, all the stuff that you'd expect from your from your uh, your bog standard witch there. Um, and in the 16th century, with Henry's decree, witch hunting in England, uh, it had something of a new dimension now because it wasn't just uh, you know the, the the witchcraft. There was also the the religious element to it, right? The background of religious strife is uh, is sort of a, a backdrop to anyone who isn't an Anglican. Uh, being being persecuted, being uh, being uh, tracked down, and of course, you know, the, the the religious strife between Protestant and Catholics was dominant there. But of course, many of um, many of the persecuted people they fell out of sight of these two definitions, either Protestant or Catholic, and, and by not being Anglican, they were they were definitely. Uh, yeah, you know, on the wrong side of the authorities at the time. And, you know, at this point, most witches, I hope you can hear the inverted commas that I use there, most witches are, are village healers, uh, people, often women, who have something of an understanding of herbal remedies uh, and they have mystical reputations. Uh, and many of them believe themselves to be witches. Many of them did sort of put themselves out, you know, into that category, into that definition there. And they often sought uh, payment to work what they believe to be their magics, uh, despite the danger it put them under. However, in places like Lancashire, right, Lancashire had a very lawless reputation, particularly around the time of the English Reformation, right, far to the north of England, it was possible for a lot of Catholics to go and hide there, despite all of Henry's reforms. There, it wasn't very well policed. There wasn't, there were, there were the authorities, uh, you know, that, that were so stringent down in, in the south weren't as, uh, as sort of uh, foreboding of the further north you went. So there were a lot of people who were skirting around uh, religious laws at this point, which obviously included a lot of Catholics, but also included people who were who identified again as witches. So it was, uh, it was much more possible, right, for uh, people, you know, to practice their so-called witchcraft and with, with a lot less concern about being caught and being put to death. Anyway, this is this is sort of where the story starts, right? With with the English Reformation uh, specifically here and, and Henry's reforms. But we we jump forward a number of years here because after Henry died, he was succeeded by his uh, his son King Edward the Sixth, who reigned very briefly before the Catholic Queen Mary, uh, who was also uh, Henry the Eighth's child, took the throne. And this led to plenty more religious tension and conflict. Lots of people being burned at the stake. You know that'll show those bastard Protest Protestants. Yes, it bloody will. But Mary didn't last long, however. And in 1558, she was succeeded by her half sister Queen Elizabeth, the famous Virgin Queen, of course 
you've all, all heard of her. And you may know that she proved to be a little more religiously tolerant than many of her, uh, her predecessors. And this tolerance actually did extend to witches. So, the, so things got a little bit better for, uh, for, your, for your Commonwealth Garden witch uh, with, the, um, with the, the reign of Queen Elizabeth. In 1562, she signed, and this is the actual name of it, an act against conjurations, enchantments, and witchcrafts. That is the actual name of the law. Uh, conjuration, enchantment, right out, but apparently, you know, destruction and alteration still fine. Um, this act was much less punitive than Henry VIII's, but it still meant the death penalty for anyone who used witchcraft to harm others. Other more benign witchcraft would result, you know, and you'd be chucked in prison or something, but it was only if you actually harmed another person that you'd be, uh, you know, you'd be executed. So, as a witch... You have to be very bloody careful, very bloody careful indeed with your ensorcellations and your invocations uh, because uh, good Queen Bess, she would, uh, she'd come for you, mate. She would come for you if you, as, you know, as the Act put it, were so foolish to use, practice or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm or sorcery whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed. So if you're using a bloody, you know, sorcery to destroy something, whew, you are in a big trouble during the reign of, uh, of Queen Elizabeth. And as you might expect, um, it, it actually did only get worse there for English witches because in 1603, Elizabeth died and she was succeeded by King James VI of Scotland, also known as King James I of England. And he was that into witches that it was a little bit weird, mate. Like this bloke, so he was a dyed-in-the-wool Protestant. You can hear about his accession in episode 19, right? He was a dyed-in-the-wool Protestant. And even from, you know, from, from before he took the, the throne of, of, of England, he was very, very interested in, uh, in, you know, not only learning about it, but also developing the Protestant review on witchcraft. A decade or more before taking the English throne alongside the Scottish one, he had been convinced that, uh, that some Scottish witches were coming after him. He'd even been to some witch trials himself in 1590. The, the North Berwick witch trials saw people tried and convicted of witchcraft after James's ship was caught in a storm. Uh, they confessed to working, you know, powerful sorceries to summon this storm and said that even sent some devils uh, onto the ships as well. Um, so, you know, you, you might wonder, well, why would they confess to such a thing knowing what the punishment was? Well, they were all tortured horrifically before they gave this confession. So, you know, I guess you know that. Thanks to that, you know with 100% certainty that what they're saying is true, right? Because everyone knows it's impossible to say anything other than the truth when you're having your fingernails ripped out. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that King James, he really doesn't like witches. Doesn't like them very much at all. And he actually seemed to be quite scared of them, to be honest. Um, he wrote a book in 1597 called Demonology. Um, and it talks about magic. It describes witches, devils, vampires, werewolves. It explains sorceries and conjurations. And, and I mean, honestly, at this point, it sounds more like a bloody D&D rule book, to be honest. But, you know, that's Look, this bloke, he is fair obsessed with the supernatural, and uh, within a year of adding the English crown to his Scottish one, he is off legislating on his obsession. In 1604, right, just a year after he took the throne, Elizabeth's act, it was broadened to include not just, you know, common or garden witchery, but also anyone who summoned familiars, uh, communed with evil spirits, or exhumed bodies for the purposes of ensorcelation, the darkest of all the sorcerer's arts. The forbidden magics, necromancy. There was actual, actual laws in 17th century England and Scotland against necromancy. Sure. Anyway, as we get to 1612, uh, the 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 and the you know the Lancashire witch trials that came with them, you can see that the deck is very much stacked against witches everywhere. It is not a safe time to you know go about with your bloody 
pointy hat and your broomstick and your, and your eye of newt. Oh, no, it is not at all. So with our background now firmly established, how did these specific trials come about? Here's what happened. In 1612, right, James, he's now been on the English throne for nearly for nearly 10 years. He's still fighting the fight against these, these bloody bastard Catholics. I tell you what, they're not leaving alone. And he, and he wants to really come down very hard. So what he does in this year, in, in, in 1612, he, he instructs all of the justices of the peace, right, in Lancashire, to find recusants. Now, recusants, they were the people who refused to go to Anglican church services, which was which was illegal. Um, this is where all the, you know, the religious conflict I was talking about before, that's why it's important. So these JPs, they're going around principally trying to find Catholics um, who were refusing to go to, to, um, to Anglican services. But it didn't stop there because anyone who was outside of England's religious orthodoxy was also well and truly at risk. And that, of course, included witches. And so it was that while searching for recusants, right, there's this fella, his name is Roger Noel, and he was a JP. He was the JP, JP for Pendle, uh, which is a borough in Lancashire. He had a complaint brought to him. A peddler named John Law came to, Rod, came to Roger Noel, this JP, who, who is, you know, off searching for recusants of all kinds. And Law, he tells him, a, uh, tells him a story, a story filled with dark magics and powerful bewitchification, one bound to send a chill down your spine. While travelling near uh, Trawden Forest on the 21st of March in 1612, Law had come across a young woman named Alison Device. And young Device, she she uh, she comes up to the peddler and she asks him, says, listen, mate, have you got any pins, right? And, and as you're no doubt, no, you, I, don't, I don't need to tell you this, you, as you are no doubt aware, right, pins are a very important tool in witchery. I don't need to tell you this, but, you know, they're used from... Everything from treating warts to divination, you know, they even get used when working love enchantments. Very useful thing, you common pin when uh, when you're a witch. Anyway, she goes to Laura and she says, mate, you got any pins? Um, and he goes, well, let's see the colour of your money before I start getting me pins out here. And and here's where their stories deviate, because Law claimed that she didn't have the money and was just begging them off him. Whereas Device claimed that she did have the money and was going to buy them, but uh, that Law refused to open his pack uh, for what he thought was going to be such a small purchase. Now, obviously, whatever the story is, there's a bit of argy-bargy between the, between the two of them, a bit of bad blood. Uh, and here's where it all went wrong. Because after this altercation, after this argument they have, Law, he, he goes to continue on his way, right? But then, what's this? He stumbles, he trips, he falls over, and he's got this bloody feeling of, of dizziness, weakness, and confusion. Could it have been the effect of foul black magics worked by Alison Device as retribution for his recalcitrance? I mean, almost certainly not, but that didn't stop him from thinking, though it also, also amazingly, didn't stop her from thinking so. Device herself, she was convinced that she had mystical powers, and she was also, she was convinced that she had caused Law to collapse in retaliation for his refusal to sell pins to her. What is this story, mate? Bloody hell. Anyway, Law, he recovered from, from his breakdown. He made it to an inn and he recuperated there. It's thought that he actually may have just had a small stroke, although we're not sure. But a few days later, he was paid a visit by a device. Now, she can she actually confessed, right? She came to him and she, she came to him and asked his forgiveness. And she confessed to having, you know, enchantmentarized him out near the forest and she asked his forgiveness for you know having used her powers in this way but it doesn't seem like he forgave her because just over a week later on the 30th of march law went off and you know bloody dobbed her into the jp so noel right this justice of the peace he summoned not only alison device but also her mother and her brother elizabeth and james respectively and questioned them as well and once again young alison device she confessed 
to having otherworldly powers. She said that she'd sold her soul to the devil uh, and that she'd called on these, you know, infernal powers that she had so gained to cause law to collapse. Her brother supported her story, saying that, yes, it's true what she says. You know, she also told me about how she used her bloody eldritch jiggery pokery to ensorcelate a small child a, a while ago. Now, this obviously was not the greatest move to make, you know, confessing to to being a witch at this point. And it was a very difficult thing to be, you know, it was a difficult accusation to shrug off at the best of times, but actually confessing it. I mean, you had Buckley's chance after this. And her mum was obviously quite worried about this. Her mum, Elizabeth, you know, again, is, is being questioned about uh, being a witch. She denied the witchcraft charges. However, check this out. She threw the whole thing from a loop when she chucked her mum, so Device's grandma, under the bus instead. She told Noel, oh, no, I'm not a witch. My, my daughter's just said she's a witch, and oh, but I'm not. But my mum is? Her grandma is? Like, so she she tells Noel, right, about a strange mark that can be found on old grandma's body here. And this, this is another classic witch hunting trope back then. Women with birthmarks, moles, or any other, you know, skin blemishes, especially those that were near their fannies, um, they were thought to have let the devil drink their blood, and the mark was the you know the remnant of this infernal transaction. And obviously, this isn't true, of course. As t- today, obviously, we know that that isn't how birthmarks and moles and blemishes are caused. We all know that today they're caused by you know five G and I don't know Obama probably stuff like that's usually his fault. Anyway, um, device uh, you know she's going to get done for witchcraft here. Her grandma is also in bad shape after having been out as well for having a you know. A, a, a dermatological blemish. Um, but we're not stopping here. Oh, no, no, no. Device, who seems to really have had a thing for making interesting decisions, decided that she also wanted to, you know, point the old finger at someone. And so she goes after another family, a separate family, right? The Chattox family. Apparently, there's a bit of bad blood between the Chattoxes and the Devices. The story goes that the Chattox family broke into the Device family home um, and nicked a bunch of stuff in 1601, so over 10 years ago here. But the Devices, they've got long memories, it seems, and so Alison Device, a confessed witch, is now accusing the Chattox clan of, of being witches as well, root and branch, every single one of them. She says that the, the matriarch of the Chattox family, a woman named Anne, had killed uh, no fewer than five men with her dark powers, one of whom was none other than Device's own father, who was said to have lived in fear of the Chattox's foul magics. So you can just imagine Noel, the JP, he is sitting there listening to all this like it's his bloody lucky day. He has hit the gold mine here. Confessions, accusations flying around, each more ridiculous than the last, but of course that, that doesn't matter, mate. A witch is a witch. Easy, bloody get, get them all to me and we'll, we'll start running the questions, see where we go, right? So, he hauls in the Chattox family for questioning as well. Why not? Bloody, you know, bag a few more warty old noses before all this is out. And on the 2nd of April, um, he brings them in. More Well, not just them as well, as we'll discover. Quite a few women are brought in uh, and, and are cross-examined about this whole affair. Anne Chattox, or Mother Chattox, as she was known, uh, along with her daughter, also confusingly called Anne, although she'd married and was now known as Anne Redfern. Um, and in addition to this, um, uh, Device's grandma, right, uh, the, the one who was accused of having the, uh, having the, you know, the, 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 the blemish there, she's known as Old Demdike. Uh, she also got brought in in question two, you know, just for good measure, you may as well, right? And now the confessions just did not stop. Both Mother Chattox and Old Demdike, right, they, they both confess to being witches. They say that they sold their, their souls to the devils, you know, decades before they've engaged, engaged in perpetrating the most determined witchery ever since. Um, they're known. They're known throughout, you know, their respective communities as as witches, as you know. I mean, I mean, people. You can say wise women and naturalists, herbalists, whatever else, but they they were just known as witches. And this was a a living that that many women attempted to make back in these days, despite the dangers. But now, 
They've been caught. They're in their 80s. They're both blind. So both Mother Chattox and old Demdike, they're like, yep, whatever, young man, you've got me. I'm a witch through and through. Yep, here's the water my nose. Yep, here's my toad. Here's my newt. Here's my broomstick. Here's my cauldron. Don't even worry about it. You've caught me. So these women, they're bugger. Noel, he's satisfied with the evidence he's gathered. He's chucked a lot of them in the chokey, including Anne Redfern, who isn't even like a witch or anything, just just has been tarred with the same brush. So she's she's off in the jail as well. Um, and a few days later, on the 10th of April, uh, he also rounded up the rest of the Device family and a few others on top of that and chucked them all in prison too. I mean, on, on watch large, most of this seemed to be, again, like in the case of Anne Redfern, charges of witchery by association. But, you know, then again, if it walks like a witch and it quacks like a witch, then, mate, it's just probably a bloody witch, isn't it? No point thinking about it too much. Or maybe it just hangs out with witches a lot. I mean, good enough for me. Into the slam with you, mate. Don't even worry about it. So these people, these people who uh, who Noel sort of locked up at this point, they become known as the Pendle Witches, and they were held to stand trial. But as I talked about before, witch hunting, it tended to catch on pretty bloody quick uh, with people back then. Everyone was always up for a good old-fashioned witch hunt. Uh, absolutely love it. And uh, so it wasn't long that uh, it wasn't long after Noel actually reported his arrests of you know twelve accused witches. He's got them all locked up. That other JPs in Lancashire going, geez, bloody hell! I better lift my game. This I got to get these got to get these rookie numbers up. Mate, got to pump up these numbers. Rookie numbers in this racket. I got I got to catch more witches. And so one such JP, Robert Holden, was his name. He obviously wanted to uh, to get his his witch hunting numbers up. Obviously wanted to juice those numbers. And so he went off and arrested eight people of his own in uh, in his borough. Right now, three of them. Jane Southworth, Janet Bealey, and Ellen Bealey, they end up uh, going to trial at the same time as the Pendle Witches. And we'll talk about that. They, they became known as the, as the Salisbury Witches. I'm just, I'm just hoping to say it fast enough that it, just, it doesn't sound like I'm mispronouncing it, the Salisbury Witches. So we'll hear about them. We'll hear about the, um, uh, you know, the, their supposed witchery as we start to talk about actually the, the trial itself. Because another, it's another cracker of a tale. The tale of the, uh, you know, what actually happened during the Lancashire Witch Trials. It is a cracker of a tale. So I, I hope you're sitting comfortably, my friends, because you're going to enjoy this one. So both the Pendle and the Simpsons Witches, um, they're held awaiting trial, a bunch of others as well, uh, until August, when on the 18th, the Lancashire Witch Trials, they finally got underway. The judges, they were two blokes named uh, Sir James Oltham, and Sir Edward Bromley. Now, Bromley in particular, he saw himself as an up-and-comer. He was probably very, very keen to impress King James with a string of convictions, um, given the king's interest in, you know, in, in hunting down and purging witches. Now, additionally, during these trials, during uh, during for, for all of them here, the chief prosecutor was none other than the JP, Noel, right, who, of course, had access to all the evidence that he'd gained while arresting and, and, and questioning the accused, the Pendle Witches there. So, it will surprise you to learn, therefore, that before it had even begun, this 17th century witch trial was a bit of a kangaroo court. The Bendel witches, they were they were tried first, uh, for the most part, although poor Anne Redfern, she was actually tried twice, right, on two different charges across two different days. Uh, so we'll deal with what happened to the Pendle witches first, and then we'll cover the Summers witches as well. Uh, the trial of the Pendle witches is unbelievable. You will be shocked to learn, I don't doubt, that it was uh, it was not a particularly rigorous, reasoned, or rational legal proceeding. In his book, uh, Demonology, the one that sounded like a D&D rulebook, you'll remember, King James had laid out a justification for suspending the normal rules of evidence and testimony, and these trials took full advantage of the fact that the king had sanctioned a, a relaxing of the rules of evidence specifically for witch trials or trials that involved the uh, the supernatural here. So, for example, right, th- this is just how sort of low the the, uh, the the standard of evidence became during during the Lancashire witch trials. Mother Chattox, right, she was found guilty straight away. 
not just because of her confession, which obviously sort of sealed the deal on its own, but also because in, in order to you know, support the confession, make everyone well and truly aware that it wasn't a false confession, this is not a joke, a witness got up and said in the trial that Mother Chattox had once cast a spell that had turned some beer sour. Now, I mean, of course, as we all know, that's the only way that beer ever goes sour is with magic. With, with It's with magic spells. So that's good enough for me. Good enough for the court too as well. Mother Chattox was found guilty immediately. I mean, in fairness, it was widespread knowledge that she thought of herself as a witch anyway. And the beer, well, I mean, yeah, that, obviously that just proves it. But um, her daughter, Anne Redfern, as I said, she she also went under the uh, uh, you know under the same sort of uh, the, the same trial proceedings there on day one. Now, luckily for her, she was acquitted on oh, the first time. She was acquitted of, of of the first charge of witchery. But uh, just you wait until tomorrow, Ooh, mate. We got another thing coming for poor old Anne Redfern. Anyway, when it came to the devices, right? So that that's Mother Chattox. She's 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 bugging, mate. She's she's going to hang for it. But when it came to the devices, right? The chief witness for the prosecution, and, and remember, I've, I've told you that they have relaxed the standards of evidence and testimony and, uh, and, and whatever else for these trials. The chief witness for the prosecution of the devices was the nine-year-old sister of Alison Device, a girl whose name was Janet. The testimony of a nine-year-old child would largely decide the cases against some of these accused witches, many of whom were related to her. Think of that. So her grandma, old Demdike, you remember she was the one who had the, apparently had the spot. Uh, she'd actually died in prison. She's very old. Uh, and so she died in, pr- in prison before the trial had begun. So, you know, that's her done. But there are plenty of other devices left to get through. And, and Janet, apparently, even at the age of nine, she's determined to do her bit. So starting with Elizabeth's device, who was Alison's mum and also for that, you know, for that matter, Janet's mum as well. You remember that she denied all charges of witchcraft laid against her. You said, yep, my daughter might be one, my grandma, uh, my, my mum might, might be one, but I'm certainly not. She carried out these protestations of innocence throughout the trial for all the good it did her because her, her little nine-year-old daughter came out as the star witness for the prosecution and absolutely tore strips off her old mum. Janet talked about how she knew her mum was a witch. She had been for a few, a few years now, said this little nine-year-old. She said that Elizabeth had engaged in you know malicious, malicious witchery now for three or four years and had even summoned a familiar to help her with it, a dog called Ball. Now, according to Janet... Elizabeth and this dog, they would have chats together. They'd sit there and they'd, you know, they'd talk. They'd just catch up and plan upon whom they would next invoke her in accursed magics. Um, and if that weren't enough, if that weren't enough to convince you already, Elizabeth's son, James, you'll remember him. He was also accused of witchcraft, it's worth adding. He piled on his mum like it was bloody, you know, it was like it was a, a bloody Among Us emergency meeting here. James claimed to have seen his mum, right, Make little clay figurines. Once again, a sure sign of witchcraft of the blackest kind. And this only backed up, you know, Janet's watertight story about a talking dog. And if that weren't enough, if it weren't enough to have the testimony of of both her daughter and her son with buddy talking dogs and clay figurines, right? If you're still in doubt as to whether Elizabeth was indeed a witch, well, here's the smoking gun that will clear up any uncertainty in your mind. Elizabeth, if you'll believe it, she had... A slight facial deformity. That's right. Her left eye was a little bit lower in her face than her right. I mean, that's it, right? What more What more do you need? What more? What else is there to say? This woman had a minor facial irregularity. Burn her. Burn the witch. Elizabeth was convicted on the overwhelming strength of the evidence here. A talking dog, a mild interest in pottery, and squinty eyes. Case closed. This woman was sent to her death as a result. And she wasn't the only device to go. Her son James, right, the one who'd grasped her up 
also stood accused of witchcraft. Now, this was unusual, as I mentioned. Witch hunts were inherently sexist, and very few men were accused, let alone convicted of witchcraft. For example, under uh, Queen Elizabeth's Act Against Conjurations, Enchantments and Witchcrafts, um, 157 people were formally charged with witchcraft, but only nine of them were male. So now you see the bias inherent in the system. Um, women have, I mean, women have had a rough go of it at the best of times throughout history, and witch hunts certainly highlight that very strongly indeed. Anyway, James Device, he's a rare exception to the rule, and as I say, he was accused of witchcraft despite being a bloke. But I tell you what, all he's sucking up to the trial earlier by dobbing in his mum did him absolutely no good, did him no good at all. Um, James at some point had confessed to Noel, which is obviously a rookie mistake in any any historical period, never talked to the cops. Um, but but his confession was read out to the court, and this was, I mean, no bloody good at all. He, he, he's done as well. So and, and, and to seal the deal, if the, again, just in case this weren't enough for you, to seal the deal, once again, young Janet, she starts bloody flapping her gabber and once again was telling stories about talking dogs. She ran back the same gear that she'd used on her mum. She used it on her brother too. This is not a joke. Janet actually helped to send both her mother and brother to their deaths by saying that they had been talking to dogs. And it was three from three for the devices as well, because Alison, the one who had you know started this whole thing along with the peddler, she confessed openly to the accusations of witchcraft because she genuinely seemed to believe that she was guilty. She actually did think that she was a witch with these magical powers and that she had, you know, caused this peddler to collapse and, and that was what kicked the whole thing off there. So she actually is there, you know, weeping and, and, and begging for forgiveness in front of the court because she does actually believe she's a witch. So, I mean, she's buggered as well. She's off to the hangman's heel too, so don't worry about that. I mean, it's just a freebie for the prosecution. They didn't have to work for a device. She just broke down, confessed, uh, you know, after being confronted at the trial, whatever else. The peddler was actually there and made a, made a made an accusation to her face and she just broke down and said, yep, I've done it. I've done it, everyone. So, anyway... There were plenty of other witches to hunt uh, at the trial across both its days. I, I, and you know, we'll move on now to talk on the 19th of August um, when a bunch of other people were, were tried and convicted. You know, there were various sort of isolated incidents of witchcraft that, well, supposed witchcraft that were brought in front of the, the trial. Most of them had absolutely no chance, of course, and most of them were they were strung up with the rest of them there. But, um, you know, one of the people who, who had to stand trial again the second time uh, was, uh, was Anne Redfern, as I alluded to before. She'd faced, she'd, she'd faced day one, she'd faded it. But the second day, it came back to bite her on the ass. She was tried for a murder done by witchcraft, right, apparently. Uh, she pleaded not guilty, but old Demdike's accusation of her making clay figurines, that was read out in front of the court. Bloody figurines catching someone out again. And on top of that, a bunch of witnesses came forth to say, yes, she's a witch. I don't have the actual transcript of their testimony in front of me, but I imagine it was on the level of, she turned me into a newt. But I got better. That was sort of the standard of, of proof that was required back then. And once again, this just this sealed her guilt. I mean, there was a, I mean, there were a couple of other things. A ridiculous leap of legal logic was the fact that she hadn't accused or spoken out against any of the other people at the trial. I mean, what is this justice system? Talk about the bloody prisoner's dilemma. Never mind that. It's the bloody witch's dilemma. Seems to be shout accusations at everyone all the time and hope they don't come after you too hard. Ridiculous. One of the apparent signs of her guilt was the fact that she hadn't tried to grass anyone up. I mean, we're having a laugh about it today, but the whole thing was a shameful miscarriage of justice. I mean, life and death consequences for the poor men and women, and mostly women, um, who ended up on the wrong side of this this capricious and this fickle system here. And 
poor Redfern, I mean, she's gone down for not dobbing anyone else in. And, and I mean, let that be a lesson to, to young potters everywhere making small clay figurines. I mean, woe betide you if they ever catch you doing this. Anyway, as I say, a lot of people were um, a lot of people were tried and convicted on the 19th, on the second day of the trials. But the most noteworthy trio to be put on trial on this day, uh, it consisted of three women known as the Sumsbury Witches. Uh, I've actually looked it up, and it is Sumsbury. Apparently, the L is just not even said. So nice one, England. Anyway, um, Jane Southworth, Janet Bealey, and Ellen Bealey. They had been accused of perpetrating. This is verbatim. This is what this is what the accusation was: diverse, devilish, and wicked arts called witchcrafts, enchantments, charmers, and sorceries in and upon one Grace Sourbutts. Yes, that is her name, Grace Sowerbutts. Maybe, maybe Sowerbutts. Who knows? I mean, who knows how it was pronounced? They used to pronounce sword with the W back then, like sword. So all bets are off here. Anyway, poor young Sowerbutts. She's, oh dear. Uh, she's plagued uh, with, uh, I mean, you know, not only one of the worst last names I've ever come across, but also by these three bloody witches, mate. Oh, one of them. One of them was even a grandmother and she's still coming after all those grannies going about perp- you know, perpetrating witchification like this. It's no bloody good, mate. Anyway. Sowbutts, she acts as the star witness for the prosecution, who seem very happy to use children for their principal testimony. You know, a nine-year-old yesterday, 14-year-old today. Um, and uh, and she goes after the trio like there's no tomorrow. She tells the trial, tells the court all, you know, all these nasty things that the three have done. I tell you what, it's quite a list. Are you ready for this? Turns out, right, these three witches, they're also able to turn into dogs. Never mind, like, you know talking to them. They actually can just straight up turn into dogs, right? And they've been doing that to chase and harass young Sourbottom. Terrible thing. Terrible thing, right? Awful, awful thing. I mean, imagine your granny turning into a dog coming and harassing you, mate. No one, no one wants that sort of stuff, right? They've also hexed her to try to get her to drown herself, and also they've used magic to apparently put her on top of a haystack one time. I mean, there's no other way to scale a haystack, so I guess, yeah, it must have been powerful eldritch invocations that got her there there's no other no other way to do it um and there were more bog standard accusations that you just chuck in for good measure at any witch you know dancing about in the rudy nudie in the forest classic witching stuff like that you know pagan sex parties with otherworldly beasts i mean that's just you take that as red at a witch trial don't you but here's the most bizarre accusation and are you ready for the blood and the guts and the horrible murder because here it comes sour told everyone how she had been a witness to these three women stealing a baby from a neighbouring family so as to suck its blood. Now, of course, this makes sense. I mean, we all know from the famous Roald Dahl expose, The Witches, just how much witches hate children. So that does check out that part of the story, but it, it gets worse because the baby then died from its encounter with these witches. But even then, they weren't finished with it. Sowbutts went on to tell everyone how the witches had dug this baby's corpse up, right, once it had been buried, cooked it up for dinner, and then used the leftovers to make an ointment that allowed them to turn into dogs. So I imagine a number of you are scratching, sitting there scratching your heads. Everyone's sitting there going, yes, but how did they turn into the dogs? You know, that, that point was never addressed. It's all very well for it to accuse these women of being able to talk to dogs, but but how did... Has anyone tried to explain that? Well, you know, there's that point settled for you. They just used an ointment made from partially cannibalised infant corpses. No worries at all. It makes perfect sense. Then the father of the baby gets up and says, yep, that's all true. Sowbutts has the right of it. Absolutely 100%. Don't even worry about it. So the evidence is, yeah, real. Whoa, wow, it is really starting to stack up here. Hey, and you will be shocked. Shocked, I tell you, to find out that everyone there at the trial was pretty convinced of their guilt. Yeah, I mean, it was all pretty powerful evidence. Difficult to deny, to deny any of it, really. 
But the trio of accused witches, they said to the judges, now just hang on one second, fellas. Listen here, mate. Honestly, you need to cross-examine this sourbutts girl because we've never, we, well, mate, mate, we never done, we, we never done any of that stuff, she's saying. She's talking at her bum. And in fairness to the judges overseeing what had otherwise been an absolute kangaroo court, they actually did press sourbutts on her story. And here comes what is actually a, a shocking twist. Sourbutts, after having been sternly questioned, she admitted that all the stuff that she had said had been fake. She'd made it up. She'd been coached on, She'd been coached as to what to say by a secret Catholic priest, of all people. What this priest's deal was and why he got this girl to do this has never been properly determined. Maybe he just really didn't like Anglicans and so, you know, so much that he'd use any excuse to rid the world of just a couple, just a handful of them. But the whole thing had just been made up for the... These poor women had nearly swung for it. For whatever reason, this priest had made up the cock and ball story, uh, uh, coached Grace Sauerbutz to tell at the trial, and had almost succeeded in sending these three innocent women to their death. So, happily, the Sumsbury witches, or rather the Sumsbury ordinary women who wouldn't know an eye of newt from toe of frog, mate, they came within a hair's breadth of being hanged, but luckily the truth prevailed in their case. However, there is another there is another element to this as well that wasn't fully explored at the time, but has been brought up in the wake of the trials as an interesting sort of wrinkle there. I mentioned before that Sir Bromley saw himself as an up and comer. You'll remember that that he was see, you know eager to, to curry favour with the king as by overseeing these uh, these witch trials, and it's thought that he may have picked the Salisbury witches to actually investigate their case with a little more rigour and a little more actual, you know, determination so as to give off the appearance of being a fair judge. Because if anyone said, oh, he just, you know, he's a hanging judge for witches, he just, if you, the moment he, say, he, he can sniff out any kind of witchery on anyone, they're going straight up the gallows, mate. He can then turn around and say, aha, no, 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 because... This, you know, I led off these three witches after very carefully cross-examining all the witch, all, all the all the witnesses. Now, whether that is true or not is certainly a matter for debate. Bromley did do very well out of these uh, out of these uh, trials. He was given a lucrative position at the king's court afterwards in, in in the wake of this trial, so he did do all right for himself. And you know, the the idea that perhaps he was uh, was just sort of showboating here as as a fair judge certainly does hold a bit of water, but it's never been conclusively proven one way or the other, and it is a little bit of a cynical view to take. But I mean, it's hard not to be cynical when you're looking at this entire situation and seeing the again just the the astonishing miscarriage of justice that was just meted out like it was going out of style, and. Happily, largely speaking, it, it was going out of style, you know, slowly but surely. The, I mean, most of the poor people at the Lancashire Witch Trials, you know, the majority of them, they were found guilty. Um, and rather than, being, rather than being burnt at the stake, as you might have expected, they were taken to nearby Gallows Hill and they were hanged. Um, and most of them, most of the, most of the people who were convicted and hanged, belonged to either the Device or the Chattox family. And the blood feud between this, these two families, it saw them both suffer for it as a result, as they, as they dragged each other under this bus here. But as I say, attitudes towards witchcraft changed slowly but surely. I mean, we know uh, so much about witchcraft uh, in England in the 17th century thanks to this uh, th- this this account that was written by by Thomas Potts, the wonderful discovery of the witches in the county of Lancaster. This was, um, I mean, you can read it today. It, it it seems to be like a verbatim account of uh, of what was going on during the trial. It is not. It is. It's more of a recount than an actual account it's not it's not truly 100% verbatim but it certainly does give us an unparalleled and a and a um you know a very i guess unambiguous insight into 
the way that these uh, these proceedings took place, and and I guess like the, the prevailing attitudes towards witchcraft and witchery um, at at the time, you know, it, it does seem that that both the judges Bromley and Altham, um, you know, worked alongside Potts while writing this, and it, it, there is certainly a level of you know again bias inherent in the system as as you read it, but. Even so, and, you know, partly through picking apart that known bias there, this book is a very valuable historical resource. It's been called the clearest example of an account of a witch trial, which is, you know, definitely worth something, even though a lot of it was just written in order to make, you know, to jazz up the legal system and make it seem like it was, uh, you know, wonderfully effective at, at purging these witches. And um, I mean, uh, Thomas Potts, he did very well out of the book as well. He also was able to curry a fair, a fair bit of favour with James for having, for having written this thing and, and he did all right for himself. But, uh, you know, in as much as this, this book gave us a snapshot of what people's pre- prevailing attitudes were towards witches and witchcraft in, in the early uh, 16th century, or early 17th century, I should say, we can see very clearly how things changed, uh, you know, across the years, um, particularly as the Age of Enlightenment arrived in the 18th century. Um, uh, James's Act, the one that replaced the Elizabethan Act, James's Act, you know, the, the Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits, as it was called, uh, it stuck around for a long time. But in 1735, it was replaced by the Witchcraft Act of well, of 1735, unsurprisingly. Um, and, and this act, rather than punish people for being witches, it punished people for pretending to be witches, as it was deemed to be, you know, fraudulent and chicanerous. And people largely thought that it was actually impossible to be a witch and you were doing more harm as, as more or less a snake oil salesman by attempting to um, to pass yourself off as a, you know, as a, as a master of the arcane. Um, by this point, I guess people, many people, just woken up to the fact that witches and magics and whatever else are, it just isn't really a, a thing. So having laws that disallowed people from, I don't know, flying broomsticks and turning people into newts just wasn't particularly useful. But even as the world advanced and progressed, the legacy of witch hunts throughout history, of course, has not diminished. We've had, I mean, we've had a good giggle today at, at all this stuff because you know it was all rather silly in Lancashire in 1612. But the cold hard truth of the matter is that countless women lost their lives to senseless and baseless persecution. A woman with a proficiency in herbalism or or natural remedies or one who is maybe good with animals or perhaps a woman who just had a face like a slapped ass and was a bit ugly. Women like this, they stood the risk of being accused of witchcraft. And as the Lancashire trials show us, it wasn't an easy accusation to shrug off. And while today, you know, we congratulate ourselves for living in more enlightened times, the absurd laws that sent so many women to their deaths all those centuries ago, they can still be found in some countries to this very day. For example, the Witchcraft Suppression Act in South Africa still carries penalties for anyone who calls themselves a witch or a wizard for that matter. And those who claim to be witches are still heavily persecuted in in some other African nations as well. And then you've got nations like Saudi Arabia, where witchcraft still carries the death penalty. And worse, Saudi Arabia has beheaded several people within the last decade for witchcraft and sorcery. So we are not out of the woods yet, not by any means. And there are still severe miscarriages of justice for this sort of thing, even through to our modern age. So we look to the future then. 
And perhaps one day we will live in a world where witches everywhere can practice their enchantments and their ensorcellations in peace, unfettered by outdated and outmoded prejudice. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Lancashire Witch Trials, and I do hope you enjoyed it. I know we've, you know, as I say, we had a good giggle at this sort of stuff today because it was very silly, but there's a very serious undercurrent to it as well. And uh, and, and witch, witch hunts in general throughout history were just horrifically sexist things, and it, it, it is a great shame that... Uh, you know that they even took place, and and, and even worse, shame that they, they they still take place even today. This sort of attitude, this sort of thinking, is still prevalent in many parts of the world. Anyway, I do hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, is the uh, the website for the show. If you've missed that, uh, you can go there. There's a contact form if you want to get in touch and offer me, offer me any feedback. And you, there are links to, you can find there to subscribe. Uh, you can buy Half House History merch uh, if you like, and support the show on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/HalfHouseHistory. If you'd like to sign up, a new round of executive producers are having their business cards winged out to them. Well, not winged, probably just regular post, honestly. I, don't, I, did, I didn't hire a witch to, you know, speed them on by, uh, by eldritch, eldritch magics, although maybe I should have. Um, but if you want to join the exalted ranks of patrons, please do. It's, uh, it's great to have them and uh, great to have you. And, uh, and, and thank you so much to all the people who are supporting me on Patreon week in and week out. Uh, that is that for another another show. I'm looking forward to having company once again next week for more Half House History. If you've got an idea for a show, please send it in uh, at the website, halfhousehistory.net. But um, uh, closing out the show a little differently this week, because usually, obviously, we, you know, we share a question posed on Reddit. But this time, Ian, who sent in, uh, you know, the, the Lancaster Witch Trials as a, as a topic suggestion, also included a question that I could use at the end as well. So a little two for one there for me. And so thanks very much, Ian. Good on you. And the question's a cracker. If we spent close to 300 years condemning witches to death, how come similarly ambiguously named such as The Who were never put on trial for similar offences? 